again. We had actually we had Nick Gillespie on uh, the last episode before that. We had Steve Haken, or I thought it was local, but then I was reminded that our next guest, Jen Gerson, happens to live in Calgary again because she decided to go back home because Toronto was just too awesome for Jen. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hi. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize. So, uh, but you, you're back in Calgary. You've. Uh, I, I remember that you. Um, I remember seeing you on the CBC political shows. Like, what are we doing? Like six years ago, you were on the regular. On like, was it Power and Politics or one of those shows? Yeah, Power and Politics. I do. I also do a lot of sort of local CBC panels. So yep. I, I did there that. I don't do Power and Politics very often anymore, but. Um, haven't done actually, I think since my last maternity leave, I don't think I've really come back, but my last maternity leave also kind of coincided with COVID. So all right. of my TV channels got a little weird, but um, yeah. Well, so I, enjoyed, I, I, I enjoyed watching you there and um, and I enjoyed reading your work. And then also uh, you just started something new. You just started an independent uh, outlet, I guess the line through Substack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, me and some other people kind of have a, uh, gotten together and started to put together our own kind of co commentary site off the sides of our desks. So that's been lots of fun. And then I'm also working on a book deal. So well, I got a book deal. Now I'm working on a book. So can you talk, can you talk about that at all? Oh yeah, I can totally talk about that. Yeah, um, so do. basically it's called the panic. It's largely rooted in a, an article that I wrote for the Capitol daily back in August about um, the origins of the satanic panic. Uh, for those of you who are too young to remember this, this was like a decade-long moral panic that swept through North America and a lot of the Anglo-speaking world, in which there was a, a broad-based conspiracy that people in positions of a power were Satan-worshipping child abusers and were kidnapping children and sexually molesting them and abusing them for the, the glory of Satan. Um, really, really interesting phenomenon. A lot of stuff was going into that that I, I, I get into in the piece and we'll get into in the book. But um, one of the things that I didn't have an opportunity to get into in the piece was that like this particular conspiracy can be very firmly traced back to the 17th century and even the inklings of it were before. Like, like this, this conspiracy has been with us in the Anglo-speaking world for hundreds of years and manifests itself during moments of particular social upheaval and social tension. Um, so the eighties was only one manifestation of that. So there was back in the 1700s, there was a, a major sort of moral panic about the same, the same conspiracy. And then we're seeing the same thing emerge again through QAnon. So it's a book that kind of follows the recursive nature of this particular conspiracy over time. Oh, how interesting. Did, didn't the son of Sam, uh, wasn't that one of the sort of, uh, dominoes of a decade long conspiracy about every murder yeah. that's ever. Yeah. 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 So son of Sam. So basically the, the, the conspiracy theory is sort of uncontroversially traced to this one book called Michelle remembers, which was published in 1980 by um, a Victoria woman. And so that's why I wrote it for the Capitol daily because of the Capitol daily is a Victoria based uh, organization. But um you know, I'm having this conversation with my editor actually today and uh, saying, you know, if it weren't for Michelle Remembers, it would have been something else because Michelle Remembers didn't come out of a vacuum. Michelle Remembers came out of like a, a, an entire decade worth of um, media coverage and cultural shifts around like an occult revival. Um, there were certain uh, stories about the Satan seller came out in like 1972. There were movies like Rosemary's Baby that had come out. So like the pop, the, the entire culture had been seeded with this kind of stuff for a decade previous. And uh, I think that if the Michelle Remembers hadn't come out, something very like it would have touched the Satanic Panic off as well. The, the Son of Sam murders were also um, a huge part of it. 
although the allegations of him being, being uh, involved in a satanic cult were, were I think, he had been like it, it, that came came about sort of in the eighties and nineties, just as the height of the satanic panic was happening. So, like the when the actual murders were happening, there was. Um, put this way, so I'm, I'm watching that Netflix documentary about the son of Sam, about the about the author who um, started to make the claim that the son of Sam was was involved in a satanic cult. As someone who's researching satanic cults and researching um, the occult side, uh, his arguments are pretty uncompelling. Like, like there's no there's no if you look at the Son of Sam letters, there really isn't any indication of any kind of sophisticated understanding of occult symbolism or or, or language. There, um, the the author is or the the journalist in the in the documentary is is making some pretty pretty wild leaps. So anyway, that's yeah, all I, interesting. I, I saw that, and it was uh, he was saying like the geographical proximity of uh, Berkowitz's house to this like abandoned. Park. like park park where there was like a a cave and on the wall and stuff and yeah it seemed a little piecemeal it's thin it's thin <laughs> you know? it's it's, yeah. it's pattern seeking it's, it's it's classic pattern seeking behavior which you see in a lot of conspiracy theorists it's it's okay there's this 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 and this but a lot of these conspiracy theorists don't have the contextual understanding of what those symbols symbols mean to be able to um synthesize them appropriately like one of the things that the author was claiming was the son of Sam Sigel, so the thing he signed the bottom of his letters with, had this eerie similarity to um, uh, uh, was has had this eerie similarity to uh, this um, Sigel that appears in uh, Eliphas Levy's work, and Eliphas Levy is probably one of the most famous nineteenth-century um, occultists. But I actually have that sigil. I know what it means. I have the book that, that explains it. And there's no similarity at all between the sigils. Like oh. you've got to stretch really, really, really hard to be able to see the similarities there. Son of Sand's sigil appears to be a pretty basic sigil base built on uh, an inverted cross and the male and the female symbol. And these are symbols that anybody in the seventies would have had access to. There's, there's no indication that he had um, a deeper or deep understanding of the occult at all. Uh, so anyway, it's 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 really really interesting. Um, what's interesting to me is not the Son of Sam stuff. What's interesting to me is the is the the cultural milieu that that led up to that kind of credible to that to kind of um, narrative being believed. And of course, we know Son of Sam converted to evangelical Christianity and started to make really strong claims about this you know satanic cult that influenced him after he converted and in the midst of the height of the satanic panic in the eighties and nineties. So. You know, it's 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 pretty dubious, but it's interesting. It's interesting that he kind of got sucked into this whole this whole species. I mean, one of your one of your um, listeners here, cult hysteria and paranoia, was pretty prevalent in Saskatchewan in the 1980s. Satanic panic cult, mostly. That is also connected to the Martinsville case. CBC actually did a fantastic podcast about um, a daycare case, a daycare satanic panic case in Martinsville, Saskatchewan. Um, they did a whole series on it. It was great. So Martinsville was one of the most famous cases in Canada where the satanic panic um, just consumed uh, a local daycare and, and local people were, were accused of really horrific things that just didn't pan out, didn't, weren't, weren't provable. Uh, so if you're interested in that, I think that's on YouTube, actually. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, it sounds like a fun project, actually. You know, the research component alone, I think, like, my nerdy ass would really enjoy that shit. But um. I was also just thinking, like, if you write it from a perspective of a person who's religious or a person who's not religious, and I'm just sort of curious, perspective was when you, when you, or where it's going to be when you write it. Uh, well, you're gonna have to wait and see because my perspective comes into it in very. I'm asking you if you're religious, man. 
Oh, yeah, I'm asking you if I'm religious. Yeah. That I that I you know I think that I would probably describe myself as a lapsed atheist. <laughs> Wouldn't that mean <laughs> my, you believe in God? My religious perspective is is yeah. I mean, my religious perspective is very is very complicated. I would say I don't think it it falls into a, a, a conventional Christian framework. But I don't think that you could you could peg me as an atheist exactly either now. So it's it's um, you know I don't come into this as being judgmental of of the the evangelical Christian sort of milieu that that got sucked into this. Um, but I do come into it from a perspective of if you want to understand what happened here, you do have to understand a little bit about occultism. And you have to understand a little bit about what's real about secret societies and occultism and what is fantasy about secret societies. And if I'm going to explain what's real about secret societies, you know, you kind of have to take your Christian lenses off for a minute and try to understand these groups from their own perspectives a little bit to understand why um, the claims made by people like Son of Sam or the claims made by Michelle Remembers just were outlandish and completely ridiculously off. Um, why they were very evidently a fantasy of occultism as opposed to real occultism. So, you know, and anybody who's any researcher or any experience in this could, could explain this very clearly. I mean, the, the same thing I would say is, is if you look at the way that Alex Jones treated the Bohemian Grove stuff, I think this was back in 2000 and just like 10 years ago now. So Alex Jones did this big expose about what was going on in Bohemian Grove. And it was the same kind of pattern-seeking behavior that the author Maury Terry was engaged in when, when he was trying to prove the Son of Sam satanic cases. He was taking stuff that looked weird or off or creepy, and but because he doesn't have the um, grounding in occultism to understand what those symbols are or where they're coming from, he uh, uh, makes these really crazy claims, like they were sacrificing a human person on the on the pyre because look at the way that there's this creepy symbol that looks kind of like a skull on top of their brochure and shit like that. And going like, no, that's not actually what's happening here. <laughs> just, just so you know, they are engaged in something that looks really off, um, but it's not what you're claiming it is. And it's, it's, if, if you understand what they're doing, you understand that, that it's not as malicious as, as you're, as you're, as you're, you think it is, but um, anyway, it seemed I get like a school play when I watched it. Yeah, I remember yeah, thinking yeah. like, yeah, this looks like, Hey, it's who gets to play the owl this year or whatever? Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. It basically the way that I would describe it is that it what what I saw when I watched the Bohemian Grove stuff was something akin to the kind of hazing rituals that you would see in a fraternity or a sorority. Yeah, right. They're engaged. They're they're engaged in a kind of um, psycho psychodrama, psychodrama, or a kind of performance art that is intended to elicit a kind of psychological reaction among the people who are seeing it. In this case, what the psychodrama that they're, react, that they're engaging in annually at Bohemian Grove is intended to um, uh, give these sorts of important people who are there the psychological permission to let go and just be stupid, little, you know, irreverent, ir irresponsible, boyish shitheads who piss on trees, right? Like there's, but that's what that ritual is actually intended to do. That ritual is intended to sort of be like, okay, you're in a safe, silly space now. And now you can just let loose and get drunk and be ridiculous here for two weeks out of the year. And you can, you can put your everyday cares aside. And they're engaging in kind of a, a 19th century style, quasi ironic 19th century style psychodrama, similar to what you, again, what you would see in kind of, skull and bones kind of secret societies or or um 
hazing rituals would be would be equivalent. It's quasi it's it's quasi ironic, but it's serious in the terms in the way that it actually affects people when they go through rituals like that. It's not worship of Moloch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's not what I'm seeing there. Um, so what but again, if you don't if you don't have fake, any experience, what is fake occultism? occultism versus real because since all religion is fake to me i just want to know like what does real occultism look like is it about the power structure like, what is it about like versus well that's that's a, like the, fake to get occultism. into that we'd have to have a conversation funny. about what's what's real occultism right like like if if you think all religion is fake then all occultism is fake too right because the right. line between religion and occultism or, or or prayer and spell is 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 really cray when you start to really dig into it right yeah i know i was Basically, raised catholic like though, there are yeah. well exactly right exactly i was raised catholic too right so you you yeah. know if you're drinking blood for fuck's sake to marry drinking blood and eating flesh yeah, exactly right you know? <laughs> exactly and if you're if you're, if you're putting a candle in and like like lighting the prayer the prayer to Saint Mary and asking her for a favor, is that occultism? Like like or is that prayer? Like like there's there there's basically uh, there are secret societies like there there definitely are secret societies that engage in um, uh, secret ceremonies and secret rituals. The Masons are probably the ur example of this. Um, you know, but there are lots of other occult societies that that do what I would say. What I, it's it's almost a form of sort of ritual drama or psychodrama that is intended to elicit certain spiritual development or growth in people. There are, you know, of course, we know Wiccans and pagans. There are witchcraft groups, um, people who practice spells and and things like that. But when you really dig into it, the 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 line between religion and 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 occultism is is really gray. And a lot of it has to do with what is accepted by mainstream society and what isn't, right? Like yeah. Catholicism is accepted in mainstream society. Yeah, masonry is a little more gray. <laughs> you know, like all societies know are, are just not accepted. Although the actual, yeah, the older I get, the more I look back on on some of this stuff, and I was like, why, why were we doing this? Why was I telling? old men in closets my sins like i i, I didn't yeah. you know I, it was it got really weird i i got to the point where i was like i think i was an atheist when i was, I was like in grade five or something like that. i decided yeah. when the nun that came to the classroom told me that all jews are going to hell i think i'm about done with this shit, right like just because god that was that mean and then um and then i got to this place where it was like uh i, I would go to confess because we has to go, we had to go to church every Wednesday, right? And uh, I would go to confession once a month, and I would confess that shit was lies. You know, I just wanted to see if I could like put a glitch in the matrix of Catholicism. I think, but anyways, yeah. So uh, you're preaching to the choir if you uh, are saying that a lapse, a lapse atheist is like what an agnostic that thinks there might be something out there but doesn't spend too much time thinking about it. That is that the idea? Yeah, I think I think that that would be where I was at. Like I was pretty ardently atheistic for a very long time and very strictly rational, or what I would imagine to be very strictly rational. And then I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that nobody's rational that we are all kind of bound by irrational urges and emotional urges that we don't entirely understand. And that if you're being honest with yourself, you just have to come to terms with that. Um, and I think that I've also been increasingly swayed by the fact that, you know, societies that don't have 
some form of faith-based or religious frameworks or societies that tend to spin off the rails really quick because all of those religious, irrational religious impulses seem to get channeled into politics. And that's really, really bad. That's really, really unhealthy. Sort of like like China would be like the example, that sort of thing, or Stalinism. Yeah, or communism, fascism, like all of these, all of these totalitarian cultures essentially operate by taking the religious or the mystical impulse and channeling it into a into a into a political end. So you know, it's it, if you want to live in a, I, I increasingly suspect that if you want to live in a free liberal society you basically need to channel those insane tribal and irrationalist irrational impulses into something that doesn't really matter that much. And in this case, spirituality kind of make, fits the bill by all means argue to the end degree about how many angels argue or can fit on the head of a pin channel, all of your crazy, irrational nutter nuttery into that kind of a debate. And then let's have a rational conversation about tax policy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, no, that's fair enough. I, I think that that is that 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 one of the issues here, and one of the challenges that we're facing with polarization and tribalization of our current society. I mean, I'm not the only one to have made this argument. This is a very old argument, but there's a lot of re- a lot of reason why why we're seeing this in our society is because we've abandoned any kind of of overarching um, religious framework that you know substitutes our our mystical impulses. And so we're channeling all those mystical impulses into into politics, and into, I mean, it's no coincidence that we're calling it the Great Awakening, right? We're 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 analogizing it to a to a to a religious movement. Um, you know, people don't seem to be able to argue about politics um, from a non-tribal position anymore, right? Like, it's not like you and I can just disagree about this tax policy. It's my entire identity and my entire tribal tribal um, sense of self, sense of self and worth is fundamentally um, tied into my my religious position or my partisan position. So I can no longer detach, you know, a policy discussion from an identity based discussion, and that's where this thing just goes off the rails. Because if you can't do that, you can't have a policy based discussion anymore. So, like, I, I as much as I you know I, I think that you know Catholicism. I was raised Catholic and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is, this is kind of crazy and irrational. No, no debate. Like, you know, if you're going to go and, 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 or you're going to be Pentecostal, you're going to speak in tongues, you're going to be a Mormon, you're going to be blah, 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 blah. You know, you can't defend any of this stuff on purely rational grounds. It's not defensible on rational grounds, but it seems to be necessary. And that's the thing I struggle with as a lapsed atheist. You know, like, I don't think that atheism's quite come to terms with the necessity of the irrational. Right. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four Kids Flashback. Yeah, I've never actually heard that argument um, 
formulated that way. Like what what I what you often hear is, oh, society needs that Judeo-Christian sort of underpinning. That's how we built the society. And so I've heard that argument before, and it's like, okay, fair enough. I guess that's an interesting way to put it. And then I think, and it, where I would probably differ from you is that I I end up arriving at this place where, like, I see what you're saying about um, without having an overarching wing, it might uh, if it's directed toward politics. I don't know if there's a causation there, or or if there's just this idea that um, religion is is a seduction of basically kids to think in a to believe in a fairy tale. Like they have to indoctrinate you when you're young. And to be perfectly honest with you, as a parent, for the first time, I was like, that's a pretty good weapon to have. <laughs> is to have like this morality from on high because Santa works, right? But I can't bring myself to the place because it does feel like a tactic, not like I'm, I'm teaching my kids how to operate in this world. So, um, again, I shouldn't project my rationalism over. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, what if I what if I were to just concede, yes, it is a tactic. I mean, there's that great ending. Remember, what's that Bill Maher, that famous Bill Maher movie that all of us atheists love? Uh, it's not religious or there's religious. There you go. And at the end of religious, he basically reveals the fraud of Catholicism because he gets a priest to admit, like, people need their stories. What can I tell you? And like, from an atheistic perspective, this this is like affirmation of the absurdity of the church. But there's another way to read that ending, and that read the other way to read that ending is, yeah, but people do need their stories. We seem to not be able to function without them. Like, there's there's. Like our society, like I don't think necessarily it needs to be a Judeo-Christian framework. I don't really care what religion it is. Like I don't actually think that it matters what religion it is, but we do seem to have to have some kind of faith-based, rational framework. And when we don't have that, when we don't have something that's relatively functional, things go off the fucking rails, and they go off the rails badly. So it's not. It's not like. It's not like you know, you need a Judeo-Christian framework in order to have a, um, a sense of functioning morality, because we all know lots of atheists have senses of functioning moralities without a Judeo-Christian framework. But societies as a whole seem to require something, something that isn't just pure rational materialism, because that seems to lead to weird, dysfunctional, atomized societies that don't operate that that seems to be the observation. Yeah, that's, 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 that's an interesting. That's an interesting observation because uh, ratio would be, uh, you know, in, in societies draped in religion versus societies that are not, <clears throat> from an individualistic kind of their stories. Um, although sometimes, um, if I can pivot for a second, um, the, the religious underpinning fuels things like um, the COVID conspiracy thing like there's oh, yeah. a, a, an alarming percentage of, of covid pandemic deniers and anti-vaxxers when it comes to covid specifically that, that are you know that's very jesusy and and i don't a perfect a uh, perfect storm of like libertarianism and and far-right conservatism and a lack of trust in government a lack of trust in media and well, it's yeah, all perfectly conspiracy theorists subculture, you know. Well, yeah, and let me let me put it say I'm not a religious apologist either. Like religion has has been responsible for a whole lot of crazy, terrible violence and bullshit. 
Um, I think that that what I'm coming at this is that I think you actually need a need a balance, and I think that liberal democracies that have a balance of like a religious sort of space and a a non-religious to 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 quote the to quote the Bible um, to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which was that which is God. Um, when you have a society that that puts both of those things in kind of separate corners and and understands that there has to be a balance between the two of them, then it's a fine and difficult balance. That seems to be where you get a degree of functionality and a degree of of of, of, of freedom and liberalism within within a society that can do that. Um, when you have, I mean, I lived in the Middle East for a couple of years. When you have societies where the religion is 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 dominant and the religion is is your overarching framework for your political space, that's not better. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Like, yeah. like we can go back and look in history and be like, that's also not better. That 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 when you have a religious framework for your political, um, that's when your political, when your, yeah, when your political framework is fundamentally religious, that is also going to lead you to authoritarian kind of uh, outcomes and 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 really irrational, crazy authoritarian outcomes. So that's not a better system. I'm not arguing that it is a better system, but I do think that you need a, a balance of these two things in your society for it to work. Um, as for the COVID stuff, that's really interesting. I think that essentially that is also um, uh, 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 comes down to identity issues where you have um people who have been inculcated all, all their lives with this idea that uh you know the power of the state in order to secure your religious liberties is like the highest act of martyrdom and is and is in itself a virtue uh and then have such people come to a relatively free society where you know your religious freedoms have been for the most part not really impinged upon I mean, you could there have been like some court cases here or there or whatever but for the most part if you, if you come to canada you're free to worship as you want nobody really cares um and that's great and it's wonderful and it's a wonderful and it's a wonderful freedom but at the same time if you have a, a religious viewpoint that um uh, uh lionizes martyrdom and lionizes this idea of fighting for your religious freedom against the oppression of the state, COVID's just giving you an incredible opportunity, right? Yeah. Here you have, here, this is what it is. It's, 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 it's given you the opportunity to prove your religious bona fides, right? It's given you an opportunity to prove your, your religious virtue um, by, by demonstrating your, your desire to follow God against and, and to risk, even to risk death, to follow God and to risk death in the face of in the face of of, of, of government oppression. So this is this is a, a classic example of, of of religious thinking that's been pathologized. Yeah, it's it's a I'm it's a complete mystery to me why anyone believes that the religion is even related to COVID. Like it's you have to dig so far deep into um, this sort of rabbit hole of of global politics to to really. you know, see the, the where the first domino was. So it's like China, Joe, who was influenced by China. And then you start digging through layers and layers of like Bill Gates and vaccines and Pfizer. And it's just evidence that the New World Order is trying to vaccinate us to make us all communists. And it's, it, it's infuriating and it's growing. Yeah. larger than it was last year. And last year I thought it was pretty off the charts. Yeah. I mean, what I find so incredibly frustrating about this pandemic is that I've been in a state of just intense anger for the last six months. I'm so angry about this pandemic. I'm so intensely angry. 
I'm really, really intensely angry at the COVID zero people who seems to think that we can, you know, basically lock down all of society for six months in order to get to no zero to zero cases. I think that's a fucking fantasy. And I think that those people have an extraordinary amount of power within um, the influential circles that are making the decisions right now. And I don't think that they're, that they're, that they're making rational measured science-based arguments or decisions. And I'm intensely angry at the anti-lockdown anti-mass people because I'm like, dude, we have we have the answer. Like literally it's being delivered in boxes by the millions now. The answer is the vaccine. Once enough of us get vaccinated, they can't they can't continue the lockdowns anymore. They can't shut down schools anymore. Once enough of us have been vaccinated, the case rates are going to fall and all of the arguments for the lockdowns collapse. So, like, the answer is before you. All you have to do is choose to take the key that has fallen from heaven, stick it in your arm, unlock the gate, and walk out into the light of freedom. But again, it goes back to this idea that so many people seem to have have, have um, built their identities around libertarianism, lockdownism, uh, uh, fighting against, having this amazing opportunity to fight against state oppression, all this kind of stuff, that they would rather the nobility of the fight than, 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 than buy into the vaccine and just be free. You know, you'd rather the nobility of the fight than the actual freedom you're fighting for. That's the terrible fucking irony of all of this. And that's why I'm just so angry all of the time, because I think that we have these two really polarized and extreme and frankly, both extreme camps. Um, and they're feeding off of one another, right? Like they're just absolutely feeding off one another. And like in the COVID zero camp, you've just, you've got this framing of all of the anti-lockdown people as being um, just hate haters of the community and, and they just don't care if they kill people and blah, blah. And yet when I talk to some of the anti-lockdowners, I don't get that sense at all. I don't get the sense. I get the sense that sometimes they're horrifically misguided about the actual threat that COVID places and, and, and possess, um, possess, you know, presents towards to society. But I don't get the sense that they're just like, I want to kill grandma in order to go to the bar. Like that's, that's not the argument they're coming at this with. So there's just a fundamental disunderstanding between these two camps. They're feeding off of one another. And of course the anti COVID people are looking, pointing to all of the COVID zero people and be like, see, this isn't about COVID. They just want to lock you down forever. This is about government oppression. Right. Yeah, A friend of mine had a good point. He's like, why would the government want to shut down small businesses and keep everyone at home and waste all that potential tax revenue? Right? Like, why would we want to do that? Right, but I mean, this goes back to the conspiracy theories that, that, that all conspiracy theories have about the government. And that is, they just want to control you, they just want to control you, they just want to control you, right? And and there, if that that goes back, so if the COVID zero people are kind of irrationally driven by fear of the vaccine, the anti-lockdown people are are driven by this irrational fear of government oppression and, and government control, without seeming to understand the government doesn't really control shit. Like the government can't control its fucking vaccine mes- messaging on AstraZeneca for Christ's sakes. These people are not as competent as you, f- as you fear they are. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was, I remember I used to have sympathy for anti-vaxxers before COVID existed because, you know, they had people like Robert Kennedy Jr. People that seemed credible for, for more than, you know, that it caused autism and that it was unsafe and all this stuff. And I, and I always felt bad for them because I, these people are motivated mostly by the safety of their children. So I, there was a soft spot for them. I'm like, I didn't agree with them, obviously, but like, I think I was like sympathetic. And then this whole new breed of anti-vaxxers that seems to have mostly something to do with Bill Gates is 
I'm like, where are we now? <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like you're talking about rational um, behavior. And e even, I, I mean, a lot of these people already believe in Jesus, but they're still irrationally thinking that Bill Gates is trying to kill their kids, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, I'd go back to my original point, and that is don't assume that anyone's rational. Nobody's rational. We all sort of see the evidence that we want to see. Um, but uh, to some extent, I'm somewhat sympathetic with the anti-vaxxers because, you know, this vaccine did come to market faster than other vaccines typically do. Um, you know, there are risks associated with AstraZeneca. We do know that there is a blood clot risk. You know, if it, we weren't in the midst of a global pandemic situation, would we accept that level of risk for a typical vaccine? Probably not. But we are in a global pandemic situation. And like, you know, the one in 100,000 shot chance of a, of, of, of a, of a dangerous um, blood clot situation just is just grossly outweighed by the much higher probability of dying of COVID. So like that's that, that them's the ball game. I don't know what to tell you, but like there is a risk associated with this vaccine. You can't, you can't pretend that there isn't. It's just that the risk is, is, is absolutely infinitesimal compared to the risk of, of, of the virus itself. And that's just the challenge that, that we face in communicating that. Uh, you mentioned government competence and how they're not really capable to handle certain decisions. And I too would like to talk about Bill C-10. <laughs> oh yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't, first of all, I, I'm, I had Michael Geist on last week. Actually, we had him on the Dean Blundell podcast. And you know he makes a lot of sense to me, but even he was like, the, the, the one positive that I took from my conversation that even if they tried to implement it, and even if it passed, it's still years away because of the problems that it would create just by existing. Like, for example, how do you build an algorithm to snatch content from small broadcasters or popular individuals? And, you know, how fucked up is that going to, like, how many fucks is that going to create, you know, in, in the, the CanCon side of the conversation? And the other side of the conversation that I didn't even really know much about, except for music videos, because I used to write them, was this grant program that apparently isn't big enough yet, and painters and sculptors and people that do, that, that do sort of need these grants, uh, need these like uh, you know grants to increase and, and need to expand the Canadian grant program. I'm just like, I, it never dawned on me in all my years of creating stuff to apply for a grant, and I'm not saying that you're bad if you do, but why should small-time podcasters have to pay into this system? Uh, why, it, like the, the idea of that of regulating the internet is is so stupid to me, and and it makes me wonder why we don't have a party that can run on dismantling the CRTC, for example, or or, uh, or shutting uh, their power. You know, like hold that thought because I just I literally just did a, a, a an interview with Aaron O'Toole that's going to come out tomorrow in the line about and we talk about C10, and we talk about CanCon, so that that might be interesting to you. It might be worth reading. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the entire, okay, so the whole purpose of the Broadcasting Act was originally um, conceived of this idea that like, okay, so broadcasters are going to take advantage of what are essentially public airways, right? Like, like there's a limited amount of public spe of spectrum, air spectrum, essentially like electromagnetic frequency that belongs to all of us. And if broadcasters are going to be, you know, basically eating a parcel of that spectrum and enriching themselves on that spectrum, it ought to be subject to, to, to regulation. It ought to be subject to certain kind of rules and regulations. And that was kind of the, the, the theory of the Broadcasting Act. 
um, in addition to this idea that, you know, if, if Canada doesn't um, enforce certain CanCon restrictions, uh, we're going to be um, uh, in, uh, colonized, essentially culturally colonized by the United States. Of course, this is a particular um, sore point for Quebec because they're so uh, uh, outnumbered by Anglo speakers in, in the continent, right? So like, if that's your logic coming into the Broadcast Act, how does that logic hold in an internet era? Right, we're, we're sort of taking, we're ta yeah, we're taking this sorts of this sort of um, uh, ancient idea of broadcasting and the necessity for regulating this 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 spectrum, this limited spectrum, and then we're just carrying it over into an era in which the internet spectrum is limitless. Right? There's no there's no limit. There's no it doesn't. There's no there's no limited bandwidth. It just doesn't exist. It's infinite, um, potentially. So it, it doesn't the, the whole logic of regulation just 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 is just destroyed under this um, internet era and I and I think rather than just try to modernize a regulatory regime that doesn't make sense in the internet era, we probably just need to scratch the whole thing. If your if your concern is that we want to give um, Canadian artists broadcasters whatever. Uh, a more equal playing field in order to produce content in an era that is dominated, or sorry, in a, in a geographic region that is dominated by um, America. Fine, just incentivize them by giving them money. Like, just, 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 just pay for that. You know what I mean? Like, like buy that content. Um, you know, you it, it it's it's the height of folly to try and do this through a regulatory regime. Like it just it just isn't appropriate. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a Canadian content system that other people pay for, right? But that then creates this whole twisted incentive system um, that doesn't bluntly create a whole lot of very good Canadian content. It creates a twisted incentive system where you have like a quota of Canadian content where people are paid to produce stuff that sucks. And this is what I said. Like, I was, I was, I was on the on MLI panel about this exact point. I was like, a lot of these people seem to think that they're being given a lifeline, and it's not a lifeline. It's a golden leash. That's what they're being given. And if you're too stupid to see it, um, you know, you're going to get very, very shocked when absolutely inevitably that leash starts to get pulled. And if people think I'm, I'm exaggerating. You know, I'm not. This the leash is already being pulled. Go, go read the line. Christina Clark is a documentary filmmaker in Canada. She, she talked about. Um, the way that funding operates in the documentary film space and how that influences what kinds of documentaries get made. And increasingly, documentaries that, that conform to a particular ideological form of viewpoint or, or confirm um, an existing kind of largely progressive narrative are the only ones that are really getting funded. You know, stuff that, that, that focuses on, for example, uh, the opioid crisis among white males is not going to get funded. Um, because it doesn't, because it doesn't conform to 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 um, an increasingly narrow sorts a sort of form of of what is considered appropriate for 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 government funding. So, like like th this is sort of where I say when I this is where I would seem to conflict with what I was saying before. If you want Canadian content, fund it, but detach it from ideological tests. If you want art, you can't attach ideological conditions to art. It literally has to be. Here's a pot of money. You're an artist. Access it. And like the problem with that system is that it's almost impossible to detach it from ideological conditions right now. So what you wind up having is is a system where viable art is, and that is where this goes. 
I think that people in the media space haven't quite is that that same problem is coming for them. It's absolutely inevitable. This, so you know, I think the whole yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree. I I, I, would I don't agree with you. I don't think and, it fundamentally um, works. I, and also, you know, the white guy trying to talk about this issue is almost impossible these days. Although I don't care. Like you know, I, I have no um, shame when it comes to this type, this topic because it's so brazen right now. Like I know a dude. He's a great guy. He's he's a Jamaican dude. He's super creative, and you know, his, he has a business where he's like on your grant application because you have a better shot at getting it because I'm a visible minority, and then just give me a percentage of the thing and I'll walk away. Like this guy, this is how he makes money, and and you know, and it's almost like okay, like, but it's is it a grift or or is it just giving them exactly what they want? You know, it's it's not, you know, it's taking advantage of a system that has that seems to be. Everyone is so afraid of optics. I think that's really what I'm saying. Me, optics, corporations are afraid of optics. Optics have become this thing that is the most unbearable risk ever. And and they get into that uh, you know that identity sphere, and and they're not looking back. I don't know when this ends or how it ends. Like it, it doesn't feel like it feels like it's getting worse. I thought a couple years ago it might get better. No, it's getting worse. Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. You're frozen. That's the interesting incentives at the same time. You know, we also, as content creators, have also never had more access to tools to just basically build our own audiences and our own funding. So, you know, the line's doing really well. What you're doing is really well. Like, like you know, we have tools like never before to sort of build our own audiences detached from the CanCon sort of grift. And, and, and you know, as a, as a creative person, I can't imagine any other system. Like, I, I, I can't. I don't want the government funding me. I, 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 I don't, there, there's no part of that that is appealing to me. You know, um, the problem is that when you create the system as the government is currently unveiling it, it becomes impossible not to take government money because the, otherwise the playing, playing field is so um, uh, uneven. I mean, I've spoken to people The logic, for example, and the logic's been critical. Company backlogs. The logic has to. An entire playing field that's government funded. Right? Like, this, this becomes the fundamental problem. Is that even if, even if everybody sort of compromised by this system. I'm going to very, very 
creative system. You not going to create innovative content. System. It, 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 go to the question. Are we actually hampered? Also, so I mean, have. of the propaganda. C10 is that you have the cat video. The problem is I think we're having tech difficulties, Jeff. <laughs> I'm looking at your uh, connection speed here. I think. Uh... Yeah. This is going or something. Can you hear me? Uh, I come back because that was a really interesting conversation. Um, that's Jen Gerson. Oh, there she. Oh, no. Okay, thank you for joining me. <laughs> I forgot that it was on where you are. Um, um, yeah, because I live in the sticks, Jen lives in the house right now. So, um, listen, um, thank you for joining me on episode four. Sorry about the tech issues. Oh, wait, is she back? She's back. My uh, internet Jen? system has become unbearable. Blame, tel blame Telus. That was my first time to be live on air going, yeah, uh, not sure what to do here, guys. There's a tech we're gonna, issue. We're going to fill air. There you go. Yeah, no, uh, you can you can uh, blame Telus for that one. Telus basically has given me terrible, terrible internet access. Or or it's the yeah. Trudeau government. Who knows? Yeah, it's got to be the true dope or whatever. Um, yeah. That's interesting, though. Like the Because uh, the, I, I was talking about polarization last week with literally every guest that I had. And... You know, I, I see it as like this, you know, the the main cause of literally every problem that we have politically. And I don't know how how to fix it. I, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I think that there are, are moments that we could take advantage of as politicians. And one such moment was when Trudeau did, Andrew Scheer was at court. You remember he was about to get on a plane and he was talking about you know, he did all the boilerplate stuff like, you know, this clearly a, uh, an example of racism and we're disgusted by these photos and we think he has a lot to answer for. Yeah, yeah, whatever it was. He got on the plane. And I always thought that he missed his political moment because I think what he could have done is said, you know, um, I think we're all disappointed in these photos. And of course, he should apologize. But maybe this is a watershed moment where we understand that look, we don't want to cancel him for a mistake that he made a long time ago. We don't want to ruin his career, you know, as a politician. Um, and we hope that the next time someone gets in trouble over a 10-year-old tweet, that they apply the same type of standard that we're applying to him right now. So let's move on, you know? Oh. And uh, we lost Jen again. Jen, killing me. <laughs> there you are. There I am. No, I heard what you said. You know, okay, this yeah for sure to just basically but i mean i mean 
I mean, the odds were overwhelmingly that the conservatives leaked that, right? Leaked the blackface photos in the first place. So it would have been kind of disingenuous for him to do that, wouldn't it have? Well, I don't know if he knew that they were leaked by, um, it was probably Kinsella or something, but I, I, I don't know that if, if Andrew Shear knew who leaked it. I, I mean, maybe he did. You know, I, I don't know if that's something I would distract the leader with. But even if he makes it more ingenious, because then you give yourself the political moment. You know, and and whose whose expenses it come at? Not yours, right? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. Like I, I thought the blackface photo stuff was pretty egregious. Um, I don't know what what would have been the better the better response to that by the conservatives. Did the conservatives seem to have been able to capitalize on it? I'm I mean, obviously well, not. It didn't win. I don't think they. I I think they had a better shot capitalizing on it by sort of like for that moment canceling cancel culture. I'm not sure one of the reasons why I think the blackface stuff just didn't work with Trudeau is because there was an assumption that the conservatives were just as bad or worse right so even if even if you could condemn Trudeau for blackface if you think that the alternative is more racist it doesn't actually carry a lot of water right yeah I guess so I don't know I always think that the whole hoisted by your own petard thing is fine as long as it doesn't come from people who don't believe in canceling people you know as if you're you know if you're if you're you know the cons i was like i you know the one when i dipped my toe because i consider myself sort of a fencing annoying moderate i guess right it, it's always when it has something to do with all that because i don't like the way the left are handling business when it comes that issue so i like the idea of not having to get your you know fire tweet from 10 years ago i i think that's that anyone should get fired for something like that um and so when you're kind of advocating for something you don't believe in you're losing me on the principle and you're becoming a hypocrite because you want to score political points yeah but i guess the question is like is a political campaign the same as cancel culture right i'm not i'm not sure that these two situations are analogous like i think that i'm on board like yeah i don't really think people should be fired for a stupid tweet they made 10 years ago that's obviously ridiculous um you know we are we've created this whole punitive culture around some of this stuff that isn't that isn't healthy i mean i just i don't think anybody would speak it's not really that healthy um but in the midst of a political campaign part of what a political campaign is is basically throwing shit at one another and I didn't read blackface as like an example of trying to capitalize on cancel culture. I read the blackface situation as just a classic example of political mudslinging. Um, and that's, that's as old as but time. Isn't that that's what it is? Isn't, isn't it basically the essence of cancel culture? That's all you're trying to do. You're trying to well, cheaply I mean, ruin guess, someone's guess, chances guess, of getting office, right? Like, yeah, I guess, I guess I just, I'm just not sure that that is exactly the same thing. I'm not sure that that's exactly the same thing as trying to get some Joe nobody fired for a tweet. Like, I, I think that there, I think that if you are going to consciously step into the political fray or you're going to consciously step into political public life, you know that people are going to use your mistakes against you. Like that is, that is what you are accepting as part of that deal. That's not the same thing as canceling somebody who is just trying to make a living because or canceling an academic or canceling somebody of that nature um basically what cancel culture is is it's subjecting the traditional rules of 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 political campaigning to ordinary people who didn't actually choose that life that i think is 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 the problem with it 
right? Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the, the label cancel culture is, is always a bit problematic for me. You know, go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, should, should, the question for me is like, should we be subjecting some academic who um, has made a career sort of writing controversial but necessary things, should we be subjecting to the same rules and, and ex, ex, exilings, that's the wrong word, but the same rules and, and exiles that we would traditionally subject a political opponent to in, 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 the, in, the, in the field of political battle? Because that's what we're doing. And that, I think, is where this gets really twisted and messed up. Because the answer to me to that question is 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 no. We actually want to maintain spaces where people can say controversial things and make controversial points and dissent from, from prevailing orthodoxies. We don't want to subject every single realm of our public sphere to um, the same kinds of, of political gamemanship that we, tr we have traditionally reserved for political campaigns. Like we don't want to turn everybody into a politician. That is not actually the goal of this. We don't want to politicize every aspect of our culture. That is the problem with cancel culture, right? It's not to say, so, I mean, I think, I think we're, we're kind of seeing the problem from reverse problems. I don't really have a problem with um, during a middle of a political campaign, somebody engaged in political mudslinging in order to demonstrate that their opponent is unfit for political office. That's the game. Um, demonstrating the unfitness of someone for, for political office in favor of yourself is part of the adversarial nature of politics. I have a problem when we start subje subjecting ordinary people, ordinary people who are, whose job it is to, to um, litigate controversial issues to those same rules. I don't think that I, like, I realize that I'm a quasi-public figure, whatever, D-list person, but I don't think that as a columnist, I ought to be subject to the same rules as I would be subject to if I were running for prime minister. Like, Do you think the I, rules that are governing political campaigns are fair? Like, and, and this is not to try to, you know, protect for politicians. Fairs, fairs for, it's not about fair. Fair is for children. No, but listen, it's but what I mean is, though, isn't, isn't the problem of, with politics the mudsling? Is that one Why? of the problems? Why? I mean, if you if you think you're going to get rid of mudslinging in politics, I mean, I've got three centuries worth of democracy to show you. Like it's it's like it's just baked into the system now. It's what it is. You you know you are trying to demonstrate your fitness for office and leadership above that of an opponent. You are never going to get out get rid of the aspect of part of part of demonstrating your fitness is going to be about demonstrating the unfitness of the person around you. It's never going to be policy based or solely policy based. A lot of it is going to be emotional based. A lot of it's going to be based on who's likable. Like it's, it's, I don't think that you can get, get around that aspect of the democratic culture. What I do think that we can do is we can say, okay, those are the rules for political leadership. It's a shitty, high stress, high stakes, adversarial game. That's fine. But if we're going to have a healthy democratic discourse and a healthy democratic democracy, we can't be subjecting those same rules to academics or journalists or podcasters or artists like like there has to be a kind of civic sphere that is free of that and if there isn't then the entire basically we're, we're we're turning academics and journalists and podcasters and artists into politicians into press secretaries and there can be no honest and open dialogue and that is just absolutely corrosive for a civic culture i talk that, about I think, yeah i i talk about how the media and um and parties are incestuous a lot. Like I've witnessed certain things sometimes and I'm just, I, I'm, I'm completely floored.
like one time I know that works political party um, just demonstrated on a whim, uh, um, you know, oh, you know what? I, I think I'm going to get this person to write this story, but I'm going to tell him on the phone when he can release it and when he can't. And it was like, and that's exactly what he did. And he even is like, hey, watch it, watch this tomorrow. This this columnist is going to write this piece, and it's going to have this adjective here because I. He just liked to show up. He thought it was funny, and I thought it was horrific. <laughs> I think that part of that with mainstream media is the way that they're sourced in these really scummy people that are doing it for their party and not for journalism. And I've even seen the timing of stories. A journalist will just abide by this schedule because it will inflict the most damage onto the party. And I think that that is one of the shittiest things about journalism. And I know it happens. I know what your thoughts are. Yeah, there. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't think that journalists should. I, I don't think that journalists should see themselves as being partisan actors, and I think this is why. Like they, they shouldn't see themselves as being aligned with any partisan team. Like it's it's one thing to say like, look, I'm 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 sort of more conservative-ish in my mindset, and I'm coming at problems with that kind of framework in my head. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think anybody would dispute that I that I probably do, but I don't see myself as part of a team. Like, I'm not on anybody's fucking team. Um, you know, that's just not my job. That's not my fundamental role. And and that, I think, is what, what, what I think a lot of the problems with, with, with journalism is, has, has become, is that people sort of started to align themselves with tribes or, or teams in the journalism sphere. And I, I think that that is highly corrosive. Um, that being said, I'm also kind of a non-prescriptivist. I sometimes think that access journalism is what it would be called has a role to play like like it's useful to understand what's going on behind the scenes of a political actor and sometimes you're only going to get that from a type of journalist who's engaging in a kind of access journalist journalism so you're not going to get a critical view of what they're doing from that person but you're still going to get an informative view of what of what's going on behind the scenes and sometimes you, sometimes there there's a there's a place for that so you know i don't think of that as being my place in in the ecosystem but i do think journalism is a bit of an ecosystem right everybody kind of has their own little niche their own little space of what they're doing according to their their ideology and their their skill sets and that's 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 functional um and also journalists get played like yeah, journalists get spun. we all get spun on occasion that happens mm -hmm. it happens yeah sometimes i feel like it's you know, I never spent time working on a mainstream outlet. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing. I don't think I have the type of discipline that, that could deal with, you know, working in that environment. Um, I remember one story that I was interested in that you actually, where um, someone leaked to you the recording of the caucus meeting when Patrick Brown was being sort of, um, you know, uh, when he left, uh, when he resigned. And I remember thinking, I think I tweeted, tweeted you, maybe said something or, or joked or something, but just about, I wonder what the motives of the source was. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're, I was and, like, you're, and, you're oh. and, then, and then you, and then you harangued me in order to reveal the source and I wasn't going to do that. Sorry. No, I think harangued is, I was just musing out loud. I wonder who the source was because it seemed like there were a lot of political actors that benefited here that tape being leaked. And it was interesting to me because again, I didn't see anything in your article about how it's against caucus rules to a record the, those conversations and it's, it's confidential and they all know that. 
And so it just yeah. it felt like some politician was going, yes, we, we got someone to publish this illegal or at least our policy thing that we leaked. And it's really good for us, you know. Yep. And that's but that's the nature yeah. of a scoop. Right? Every, every 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 journalist who's going to get a scoop right. is going to get a, there is there are no such things as impartial leakers. There, there are no such things as people leaking for for the sole purpose of some kind of noble, um, unimpeachable goal. Everyone who leaks a document ever has a motivation for doing so, and they're all they're almost all every every leak I've ever encountered has been self motivated. Um, that's just how this works. Nobody leaks anything for non self interested reasons. So you are free to speculate. Uh, as to the motivations of the leakers and like you're completely free but nobody would ever leak me anything in the public interest if i was made a point of like revealing my source that's why I we don't reveal sources you. i don't think it's i asked you to reveal is. your source i don't think i ever asked you to reveal your source yes you did I, yes you did you you, specifically, you you asked me to reveal the source and you made it sound like i had some kind of moral public responsibility to do so and i didn't i think we're and, gonna like, go have to, be, we're gonna go have we're gonna have to go back to those tweets because i would love to see that but I, I i i may have i may have said i i think what i probably did was just hint strongly that the person who leaked it was was probably like benefiting politically. I of course, oh, of course. I, but no, hold on a second. But but most thing is leaked. Should, should operate. That's just basic media literacy. When you look at uh, something that has been leaked, or when something is leaked, that's leaked you should you should operate on the assumption that some that the person who did the leaking is is self interested in some way and in, in ways that may not be obvious to you. I can't think of a story though, except for tabloid stories that. Um, the, the leak is something that has nothing to do with like Justin like that. It's just wrestling kind of leak. And I, and I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head that are political and that don't the have something to do with someone's that. clear corruption. The blackface, like, but I mean, that's naive. We, we get tons and tons and tons of stuff like that all the time. Now as a journalist, my job is to sort of weigh out the juiciness of the leak with the public interest. Right. Like, I think the public interest in that particular leak was overwhelming. It was it was it was an incredibly well-read story. I you know, I think it absolutely contributed to 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 um, uh, uh, understanding what happened behind the scenes in terms of Patrick Patrick Brown's downfall. I, from from my perspective, this was a no brainer from a public interest point of view. Um, the media the never covered the part of that story that, that I thought deserved to be covered. They didn't cover actual story which was that his own party that had nothing to do with this wanted him out as leader yeah um one of the reasons uh carolyn maroney's inv investment firm's office to not criticize the great kidding gaming who they had a big investment in and the other caucus meetings that i remember listening to recordings of uh, to me hmm. were all about like you know about that part of the snow for, and then Carol Maroney somehow exalts to this place in the party. And, and it was just, it, it, there were so many loose and it frustrated me because no one would listen to the people that were trying to cover but you were free, But if you, but if you had, but if, but if you, but you, but you were free to cover it yourself, like this idea that like, I said, I don't but think journalists are special. I don't think, I don't no. think that, I don't think journalists are special. I don't think that we're like a protected special class of anything. I think we're just ordinary people who are like, writing about the government like that's it and like if you're a citizen you can do journalism journalism is just a verb 
Like, that's it. So if you thought that there was something that ought to have been covered, go cover it. And I you did. Know, nobody I, but, has an obligation. You know, nobody, and, and, to, and that's but, good for this you. This is why people don't, people don't trust media, right? They, they don't trust mainstream outlets anymore because guys like me who doesn't have resources of a CT or whoever, and, and I'm sitting there trying to shout at the mountaintops about this story. And I sent it to all these editors that you know, and none of them wanted to touch it because it was in the Me Too era, and the only thing they cared about was the Me Too era. But why? Yeah, nobody's obliged we, to touch who, it, right? But, like, like, okay, but it's not about oblige. Who? Why are we looking? Why are people even tuning into mainstream outlets? People that I've written for, people that you've written for. Why would they bother going there if they don't only tell the part of the story that has that narrow? echo chamber value well they, they don't they increasingly go to places like you do for in this example but James, but but they don't cover the, the market actual... plays into it right like they they aren't they aren't obliged to go into it and this is why increasingly they are turning to to, to more non-mainstream outlets because they feel like they're getting stuff that they're that they ought to be getting in the mainstream outlet but they're not so that's good good like you know what i mean like I don't, I don't sit around like complaining about that. I think that's fantastic. The more, but let, we're in a garden, let many flower, flowers bloom. And if the mainstream media is fundamentally failing to, to take up angles that they ought to be taken up or, 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 or letting good stories slide that is within the public interest and the public interest, public should be taking an interest in, that just gives more opportunities to people like you, more great opportunities to people like you and increasingly great opportunities to people like me who are going to cover stuff from a different different point of view and you know ask for direct support to do it and get that support because the audience appreciates what we're doing so good it's a market I opportunity I, I agree i agree I, I mean at the end of the day i do agree with you i think it's like i think it's it's sort of like trying to grasp that last string of hope that the mainstream outlets are doing their job and because I don't like, I don't really like enjoy the man, you know, because I just, you know, they don't trust it for ideological reasons. And I'm looking at it strictly from like a journalistic perspective and, and how it disappoints me that I can't rely on Shimel. It disappoints yeah. me because I, I mean, feel like I, I, I get you know, that, but journalists that they employ, right? You're also, but you're also creating this like arbitrary and false dichotomy between like mainstream media and non-mainstream media that that division no longer exists in any meaningful way you are the media i'm the media like there, there's no there's no mainstream media anymore even even the mainstream outlets that you imagine have all these resources don't increasingly they're like three people in the back of a truck like there's no even the 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 the, the playing field between what you're doing and what a lot of these other organizations are doing is is very thin like this this distinction you're making between mainstream media and not mainstream media is increasingly non-existent so i'd yeah. like why worry about it just just I, do I, if you i'll tell you what worries me what worries me is that the lack of trust that people have in the mainstream media forces them to go not to outlets like my well they do go to outlets like mine but more often than not they're going to outlets of ideology and disinformation information and wackadoo places and wreck causation from not being able to trust the mainstream media and yeah, i just came up with the one example that I yeah but i was just saying like a lot of the mainstream media outlets themselves are increasingly becoming wackadoodle so like i don't know 
I, 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 like, I, I can't fix this problem for you. Like, all I can literally say is just, you know, I try to create stuff that I think is true and resonates with people, and that's it. That's all you can do. Okay. Well, fair enough, Jen. Um, we, right? we, uh, we probably have to go. Um, I just wanted to, to leave you, though, with uh, the, the, um, the hope that you do go back on mainstream media outlets because it's really boring kind of without you. <laughs> I mean, I'm still working. I'm still doing lots of stuff with McLean's. Uh, I probably will be back on, on CBC on occasion when uh, when COVID's over and we can actually start doing some studio stuff. So, um, but I mean, right now, mostly go to the lines, the line.substack.com if you're interested in sort of regular stuff that I'm doing and uh, watch out for my book. Awesome. And it's at Jen Gerson, your Twitter? Uh, yeah, at Jen Gerson, although I'm increasingly not on Twitter anymore because Twitter is. That's a technical term. They should make that sound every time you tweet something. Just assume that I'm making that sound every time I tweet something. Okay, I will. Jen Gerson from the line. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Cheers. See ya. That was Jen Gerson, everybody. She's from the line. She's written for CBC, the National Post, probably the Globe and Mail, although I can't remember off the top of my head. And yeah, um, we are going to be talking about some ridiculous shit on the Dean Blundell show coming up at three. So please join us for that. Um, sorry about the tech issues. We're still sort of polishing our balls here at Blackbolt. And um, yeah, I'll see you next time. I'll, I'll see you on Thursday. Guest to be announced, but it's going to be a fun show. Okay. Thanks, everybody. everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's jeff woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality theme-based with special guests the blue hotel hotline at every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story get a room and listen in at the blue hotel begins Friday, September 23rd. Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.